Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. microphone a try, but I suspect that my booming infantry voice will probably carry. Ah, it's fine. I knew it. Such confidence. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for the very warm welcome, Bruce. It's good to be here uh, in front of, uh, with all of you and in front of my, one of my most stringent critics who remind me, uh, reminded me of two facets of uh, briefings that you learned. One is the five B's of briefing. Be brief, baby, be brief which I intend to do, and, and the second is to tell you what I'm going to tell you, tell you, and then tell you what I told you. All right. What our goal is here this morning is to stimulate consideration of the current health uh, of the, and the future health of the aerospace and defense industry. So those of you who are interested in such things, you know that there's been a lot of talk coming out of Washington with regard to the 2010 budget and the, uh, the succeeding years, which we call the FIDA, the Future Years Defense Plan, which is where Lockheed Martin gets most of its revenue. So it's of great importance to us uh, to, to, to stay on top of these things. On the other hand, uh, this briefing itself came about as a result about five years ago of some, something called Buy America. And there was some uh, feeling in, in the world that the U.S. was somehow through international business shipping offshore jobs out of the aerospace and defense industry in, in terms of offsets for international business that we were bringing in. So we put together this briefing to kind of say, not really, what we really are growing jobs for America. And, uh, and, and so the end of the paid political announcement is there. Uh, we need to maintain a defense infrastructure second to none. We believe that it's a partnership between the, the American military and the, and the defense in infrastructure. And Lockheed Martin, we like to say that we partner with our customers in their defining moments. And we never forget who we're working for because we end up working for our own sons and daughters. Um, <clears throat> the US, continuing through 9-11, has, continu has been uh, drawn down their defense in infrastructure and reduce new procurements, and to, to now it's, it's getting pretty interesting. Almost no new starts. Uh, following this trend, we've consolidated and downsized, but we need to reinvigorate this partnership between industry and government to ensure we have a healthy industrial base. So that's what I'm, what I'm going to tell you. Let's talk a little bit in history back after the Cold War. We were the crown jewel of the industrial base, the, the Lockheeds, the Boeings, the Raytheons. Uh, they, being in industry with Vought or any number of local companies was, was considered a great premier uh, career path. Uh, we had a lot of companies, a lot of excess capacity, so we could surge in the event of hostilities. Uh, defense manufacturing rates were steady. We could make long-range plans. Budgets were pretty well understood through the years. Uh, the defense acquisition processes were very predictable and were requirements-based for a threat that we well understood, i.e. the Soviet uh, and, and, and Chinese threats in those days. And then the Department of Defense and Aerospace, we shared a partnership and 
and defense programs uh, enjoyed what we'll call bipartisan support from, from, from the Congress. Well, guess what happened after, after uh, the wall came down? We went from 18 Army divisions to 10. We lost uh, four car aircraft carriers, 27% of the finest blue water Navy the planet has ever seen. Attack submarines down by half. Surface ships, etc., etc. Naval aviation wings. Uh, the only guys who've won in this are the U.S. Marine Corps, and they just have the finest public affairs and congressional <laughs> relations people in the world. It's their uniform. <laughs> anyway, but in 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 light of this, you know, huge reductions, significant reductions. Look what else has happened. We've, we have gotten, we've accelerated, we've gone into hyperspace on deployments, starting at right at the end of the Cold War, Panama, uh, first Iraq, Somalia, Haiti, the Balkans, Kosovo, 2001 to Afghanistan, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and it goes on and on. Look at the numbers of American soldiers that are deployed in harm's way. Uh, and, and by the way, they go, they don't come, they, they stay. The Americans leave a presence there. So these, that's essentially the same number of soldiers you got deployed Overseas, I say soldiers. I use the term writ large: Marines, airmen, naval, uh, naval. What do you call navy guys? Sailors. Sailors. Okay. <laughs> All right. But then, uh, in, in keeping up with that, look what's happened to our, our major uh, major end items. The average age of the B-52 is older than by double than the people that fly them. The C-130, the most venerable aircraft ever, uh, average age 35. Some of them. Uh, some of them in their 40s still going strong in the special ops world. F-15s, 20, U-2s, uh, way old, Navy amphibs, Coast Guard cutters, the M1 Abrams tank. This is the average age. When I left Fort Riley uh, as a brigade commander, I had Bradleys that were serial numbers 0008. Wow. Okay. That, that Bradley came off the line in 1981. Uh, still there. Still in the big red one, still doing its thing, I'm sure. And then the family of trucks. And in, and, in, and in the military, the Army wears out trucks quick, and that is what the Army travels on. So this is just a, a, an insight of what's going on. Again, this is, what, this is the, the big sky chart. That basically, this is what we use to talk about F-35 and, and F-22. This is what's happening to your combat aircraft fleet. It's dwindling down to new, new purchases, almost nothing. You, cannot, you can't sustain that. You can see the steadily rising age of the fleet. <clears throat> so we've got some domestic challenges. The, the, the economy's slowing down. I don't need to belabor that. Uh, you've got energy, pro, uh, energy crisis and cost, subprime uh, mortgage uh, fallout, the double whammy on the, on the, uh, on the country. The volatility of the, of the, the financial markets, uh, increasing demands or expectations of the federal government to provide health care, infrastructure, education, uh, national deficit, uh, debt re uh, rising, it's a recurring chronic, chronic problem. And then public support seems to be waning for high defense spending after we've been at war since 2001, essentially. And, and so I guess that's understandable from the perspective of the U.S. taxpayers. So in light of all this, how are we going to be able to sustain enduring uh, defense capabilities? Uh, just a little, you know, kind of a footnote here. 
the green line says you know you spend about the right amount the red line says you spend too much and the blue line says too little so you can see that we, we have this sine wave as we go through various public uh, things of 9-11 and, and that sort of stuff everybody says well we're not spending enough and then they come back down and the Americans just kind of as rightfully so grow tired after a while and they grow dissatisfied with with, uh, with the expense so public opinion is, is beginning to change now that we spend toward too much on, on defense um, this is a, a chart that is very instructive because I, I don't think a lot of people really understand that you really don't spend a lot of money on defense if you look at it as a portion of the GNP. Uh, and, and in fact, it's been sort of sort of level since about the end of the Vietnam War, about 1975-78, right about there. We've been we've been spending about one and a half percent of GNP on on defense. So it's, it's actually a relatively small number. And if you look at, uh, I'm sorry, it's 4%, and it's 1.5% of, of, of GDP for procurement in RDT&E, which is where Lockheed lives for their new stock starts. Uh, but so if you look at it, it's been, it's been sort of level and, and basically flat for a long time. Uh, that's always been a sort of a surprising chart to me. And here's where your budget is today. Uh, as you can see, the vast majority of it goes for military personnel and operations and maintenance. We've got a small chunk of it for procurement, RDT&E, and, and other. And we sit today, just uh, got the budget guidance this week, 2009, at about uh, at about 577 billion, with uh, without the supplemental. So it'll probably go up around. 650 or something before it's all done uh, in the summer. But um, that's what the budget is and that's how it divides out. Let me, let me just point out that this money right here, the O&M money and the military personnel accounts are pretty much untouchable. They've got to sustain ongoing operations and that sort of stuff. So really the procurement, the RDT&E uh, are, uh, are the things that we need to look at. Other, by the way, is uh, NDA mostly, military or missile defense agency. Uh, base budget, as I said. Hey, John. Yes, Could you just define RDT&E for everyone? I'm not sure everybody heard it. Research, development, test, and evaluation. That's where, that's where you develop new programs. Uh, so the F-35, for example, the new jet was when they, that jet is being developed under RDT&E monies. Um, once they get to a certain point, they go into procurement phase, and then they get out of that purple line. Just another, another, another view of the, the DOD-based budget in current dollars. <coughs> now, here's another interesting, uh, an interesting piece here to, to, to think about. If you look at the the procurement monies have increased, but the acquisition organization workforce, these are the people that are in the government that supervise the contractors, right? And uh, their numbers have dwindled through the years. So what has happened there is they've depend, started to depend more on, on contractors who come in and sort of supervise the other contractors. Fox in the hen house in my mind. So what has happened 
the government has, has kind of given up their responsibility to save spaces and people to let to do that and then they go contract for other contractors to monitor the big workforce to, to monitor the big workforce it's not a good formula and that's why you see mr. Gates has said I'm gonna hire another 20,000 acquisition professionals this in the next year or so and and he really needs to do that and get those people out of the contracting world and get them to start start getting back to the engineering disciplines and the kinds of things. This is, I think, is one of the problems that we've, that we've experienced in the defense industry. It's creepy requirements or unclear requirements. And as soon as you get a contract, uh, my, my friend Keith Rayborn here was just talking to me about a, a, a contract they let four weeks before they were told they won, they were said, well, they changed the whole, the whole nature of the beast. Well, the same with presidential helicopter. It's, it's, you've got to get a steady baseline, and that comes from having good engineering discipline in the government. Ah, another another issue: number of people in the in the uh, in the Senate and House who have military service been on the decline since the late 70s. Remember, we had the draft back earlier than that, so we have fewer and fewer members who really really have a, a, an in-touch feel with, with the military. Um, program reductions. And this is a, an interesting chart to, to me. If you look at, for example, the F-42, when, when Lockheed Martin as a prime first bid the F-42, we were programmed to build 750 of those jets. And, the, and, and the, our winning the contract was built on, it was based on an average per unit cost for the aircraft because there was a huge non-recurring RDT&E built to develop the stealth, the new engines, the coatings, I mean, all the avionics, the integration, and all that stuff, not to mention the tooling and the factories and all that. So it was a huge investment to do all that stuff. And then they only bought less than, a, 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 you know, like a quarter of what they had planned to. What happened to the average unit cost that, that we, we get excoriated on well, it's, you've still got that non-recurring up front. You've got to amortize it across all the aircraft by normal accounting rules. So an aircraft which should have cost about 60 or $70 million now costs $180 million, okay? Nothing has changed on the aircraft. It costs what it costs. We're building the aircraft we were told to build, but you're amortizing the non-recurring. And you can have the same thing with the B-2, which Northrop, Keith's old company used to work, work with, Programmed 165 and built 20. The V-22, programmed 750, built 458. It's one of the biggest reasons you see what these huge cost increases that are touted so much. If you, if you program to build so many and you build one-eighth of that, well, yeah, your unit cost did go up. Program cancellations. Um, I started out in my service with, on the Comanche program. Uh, prior to canceling that program, the, the uh, government spent $9 billion and they never got anything out of it. I say that. They didn't get one production airframe out of it. They got a lot of great sensors, some, some good technology on the rotors. They got a lot of good things out of it. They never bought an aircraft. A-12, same thing. Crusader, same thing. But you can see, this is where a lot of our, our in tax dollars go when you arbitrarily cancel programs because of shifting requirements shifting doctrine in the, in the government and that sort of stuff, um, it's, uh, it, it, it becomes real money. Now, this year they want to cancel the VH-71. I'm, I'm not politically here or there about it, 
but they have delivered the first nine aircraft and spent three and a half billion dollars on it. Well, where are those, those aircraft are not usable now. So what are you gonna do with the aircraft we just bought from the president? He says, you know, he doesn't, never had a helicopter, so he's excited and has got one. Anyway, <coughs> something's gotta happen with the aircraft uh, that we bought as taxpayers. Aircraft procurement, uh, down. Ship procurement, uh, way down. And that should be close to your heart, Bruce. Missile procurement, <coughs> way down. And then, of course, helicopter procurement, this is one area of crying need for the, the services. Uh, they're losing helicopters in combat, and, and so they are actually procuring more helicopters. So that's, that's a good thing uh, in my mind, anyway. Uh, we talked about consolidating the, uh, the industry. If you look on the left, that was the, that was the list of, of major uh, prime contractors in the defense industry uh, before 1986. As we get out, as we get out, you're now down to five, basically. Lockheed's the biggest, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, Boeing, and General Dynamics. Those are your five, the big five in the defense industry right now. But you can see, though, what the dynamic here is, is that in the old days, you know, programs weren't so big, and you had all these people far, you know, uh, you know, that were out there able to give capability and that sort of stuff. Nowadays, you take a program like, oh, F-35, Lockheed won, Boeing lost. That was a huge hit for Boeing. That was, a, that was a $200 billion program that's now out of their orders book. Well, yeah, things get a lot, that's why you see a lot more protests now, because it's hurting these people and their shareholders. And, 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 it, and all these are you know, publicly held companies. So it's only prudent that you as corporate management do everything you can to win the new business to keep your shareholders and to keep your employees going. But the industry is getting so small now, that relatively speaking, that uh, you know you have to you have to work about it. Our our workforce, 40% uh, decline since 1991. We've almost got gotten in half. Uh, it's just a little footnote for Chris. I put this one here. Legal professionals outnumber skilled aerospace workers by two to one. <laughs> and 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 just compare us with healthcare, retail. Business, financial, nonprofits, legal services. Uh, we've got about 650,000 employees in, in the defense industry. And we're sort of a, a, a niche industry. Uh, this, uh, on this one, I always thought this was a, an interesting chart. If you want to compare some U.S. industries, here's, here's Walmart, their market cap in 2008 sales, Microsoft. Here's all five, Boeing, Lockheed, Martin, Raytheon, and Northrop in one. We're, we're not even a, you know, half of what uh, Walmart is. It's just uh, an interesting, it's a, it's a sort of a niche industry at, at the end of the day. And uh, as a percentage of the S&P, we're about 1.4%, 1, 1 the whole sum of Lockheed, Martin, Raytheon, the, uh, the standard reports. It, it sort of puts it all in perspective when you hear about the, the conglomerate defense industry, it really uh, isn't. One thing, though, that we do bring home is that we are the largest uh, exporter for the U.S. Uh, so if you look at aerospace, semiconductors, foods, feeds, chemicals, newsprint, you know, all positive uh, compared to buying uh, com computers and accessories. So we are a net exporter 
uh, for the industry, for the country, and uh, the largest exporter of military technology in the world. Uh, if you want to take a, uh, a look at our uh, 2008 trade comparisons, 25 billion in total defense exports, uh, 99 billion in aerospace and defense, which includes the commercial airplanes from, from Boeing. Look at the total exports, net 677 billion, and then as a portion of the, the 14.3 trillion dollar gross domestic product. So again, we're, we actually uh, are much more robust than the size of, of, our, of our units in terms of being exporters. Uh, and the good thing about exports is they bring jobs in, right? Uh, international sales are vital. Uh, I, thought, I thought I'd show you this chart. Actually, this was the, the genesis of this briefing. We were um, talking about the F-16 built right up here in Fort Worth. Um, if, if you look at the F-16 going back, let, let me just make this simple. We built over 4,500 F-16s. Since 1999, only 52 of them have gone to the U.S. Air Force. The other 800 have gone to international services, to, to international buyers. So those 800 aircraft being built in Fort Worth by Texans and by U.S. suppliers all over the United States wouldn't have happened if we weren't able to sell overseas. And it's every single program in the, in the, in the airspace and defense industry uh, is like that. If you didn't have these international sales, you'd be much less robust. This, here's the little blue where the U.S. Air Force bought you know, 50 fighters way back in there or whatever. So anyway, the rest of those are international sales. So John, on those, are the F-16s uh, fully as capable to go overseas as the ones we keep for the Air Force? Um, that's a great question. And it's, let me answer it um, as delicately as I can. We give, we give our allies as good equipment as we think it's prudent. Um, we have a very cautious system of, of uh, figuring out who we're selling. So I can't go willy-nilly out and just sell F-16s to China and Malaysia and Iran, Iran. I mean, I have to get approval from the State Department mainly and from uh, the uh, Defense Department before I can even even make the trip to offer the, the jet. <clears throat> the F-16 is sort of the tried and true fighter. Uh, but remember, we're already building the F-35 and the F-22. The answer to your question is we always uh, supply the best to, our, to ourselves. But if you look at that airplane, you couldn't tell the difference. But the, the magic sauce is in the avionics integration, the uh, weapons integration, the capability of the onboard systems, much, much more capable kind of, kind of system. But we try to give, obviously we, we look at who we're selling and who can do what. We have special friends in NATO special friends like Australia, Britain, and Canada that are very, very close and give essentially the same equipment. But when you get further down that line, you kind of look at it a little, a little closer. Yes, Jake? Mr. Ward, I, I know that you can continue, uh, but I have just a quick question along that. Uh, in terms of job creation, don't you think that it would be best if we could cut out some of the bureaucracy that you have to go through? Uh, and plus, I mean, the more protectionism that we do have on the development of 
you know, certain technologies that we're going to sell uh, overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, don't you think that would provide more jobs for Americans if we did export uh, an increased percentage? Well, first of all, I come. In, I come. Uh, I think our export policies are are somewhat arbitrary, capricious, and irrational. But I don't have many opinions. Um, <laughs> having said that. I'm not sure I want to leave industry uh, uh, on their own to go out and do this because they are profit motivated. Can't forget that. We have to keep people working in order to keep people working. We've got to grow. So I guess I would like to have uh, a, a rational system of export controls that is robustly staffed with people who know what they're talking about rather than political appointees who couldn't recognize an F-35 on the ramp. Okay, I, I would like to have people who know what they're doing up there making these judgments. And, the, and the unfortunate piece is, is that it too often gets caught up in issues other than tech transfer. For example, how are we going to treat Taiwan? Well, we're trying to make rapprochement with the Chinese, right? So we're over here selling advanced fighters to a, a renegade province. I mean, how do you how do you treat an issue like that? Or Georgia in and uh, not Georgia, Atlanta, but Georgia Central. over there, right Central, Central Asia. Asia. Uh, how do you treat Georgia? And you're trying to, again, not irritate the Russians any more than you absolutely have to. So you have to, it has to be a political thought, a geopolitical thought process in this thing. But I wish that the technology arguments were well understood and well stated, and they usually are not. You asked me what time it was, and I built you a watch. Okay. Uh, so the total economic impact of, of your of your defense exports, uh, 19.2 billion, up, and the total employment uh, impact uh, for uh, uh, is, is 35,000 for five years. So they do create jobs uh, by selling things overseas. Now. Everybody's going, undergoing a financial crisis, so global sales of defense items have been flat. This is defense deliveries. You can think of it as just defense contracts placed overseas through all sources, commercial and foreign military sales. Um, but the thing I, I wanted to, to stress about this is that when you talk to the big five, you're really only talking about the tip of the iceberg. Underneath all this, you have this huge army of suppliers and if you go through this army of suppliers, oh look, you got Talos in there and BAE. Well, those aren't American companies, but uh, I mean Bombardier, EADS, these are all European. Elvin, here right here in Fort Worth, uh, Israeli company. Um, every one of these systems is, is a, a system of systems. So you take an F-16, the HUD is made by the heads-up display made by Elbit, the helmet made by Elbit. The engines made by um, either Pratt or GE. Uh, so there's just a, a huge uh, conglomeration of different things. The sensors on the aircraft from Talos. BAE builds the wings for the F-35, foreign company, uh, mostly. But they got more business in America than they do in Great Britain, but they're a foreign, but they're a foreign company. But in any case, the point, point of this is, is that it's a really big supplier base, and it's, and it's and not just the big five that you, that you see. Lots of cross-border relationships. Uh, I'm 
I, don't, I guess you could you could figure figure this out, but if you take, I just signed an agreement with EADS down here in Grand Prairie to provide sensors and radios and weapons and integration for them. EADS uh, North America located right down here in Grand Prairie. Uh, anyway, but but it's all over. All these we're totally globally inter interwoven. It's, a, it's as Tom Friedman says, it's a it's a flat Earth. It's very global. The F-35 wings are built in England, and they are co-designed on a collaborative uh, uh, internet space. When they shipped the wings over, they had allotted a week to fit the wings, to make the wings onto the fuselage of the first one. It took them 42 minutes. This is absolutely amazing what we can do with our engineering processes these days. But the point is, is that I deal with suppliers in Turkey, I deal with suppliers in Israel, I deal with top suppliers in Topeka, Kansas, you know, it's a global, it's a global industry. And so I guess the point of that is, I don't think we ought to take a one-sided US only view of it in this Buy America business. This is an interesting chart here, because what it wants to show is the relative dependence on your home, on the home market. So if you look at Northrop General Dynamics, the big five, we're, Boeing is a, a curve breaker because they've got the commercial airplane company and, and so they're, you know, you have to kind of put them aside because if you just took their military business, it's up here also. Ah, but you look at all these foreign suppliers, Rolls, Talos, BAE, Finn Mechanica, these guys badly want to get into the U.S. market and, and, uh, and, and to all the international market. They depend on international sales. They are international companies. Uh, 70% of their, of their dis, uh, defense sales are, are exports. So it's just a, it just kind of shows you where, you know, who's spending the money. And it's mostly coming, coming out of the U.S. <clears throat> I'm going to shift gears on you in a, in a minute. And I'm going to put myself in investor relations up at corporate. But if you look at Lockheed Martin, for example, right now, we're famous for the aeronautics and space business, the, the, the satellites, the launch platforms, deltas, the uh, launch alliance that does the shuttle. But look, systems information and technology is over 50% of the business. Lockheed uh, and I'll, and I'll go, does a, vast, a vastly bigger job than just the traditional things. Boeing, uh, the defense industry, largely an airplane company, has not, uh, has not diversified. Raytheon is diversified in a big way, uh, Northrop again, and, and of course GD. The point of the matter is they're diversifying so as not to be dependent upon necessarily one part, one budget, the US DOD budget, and as well not on one part of the DOD budget, i.e. aeronautics and space. What are we getting into? Uh, I'm trying to depict here Lockheed Martin that's uh, showing you FBI fingerprinting and biometrics. We also do the census. Uh, we uh, send you your social security checks, uh, sort the mail, uh, we run uh, the National Archives, uh, record storage management, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Boeing, same thing, lots of, lots of commercial enterprises, Northrop, Raytheon, that's showing Raytheon pipeline management, General Dynamics showing uh, air traffic control. So the industry is diversifying so as to be less uh, uh, dependent upon the DOD budget, and we're also going international to not be dependent necessarily on the U.S. DOD budget. So, getting to the end here, 
here are the realities. If we're going to be successful, we got to we got to understand our markets and and adapt to the environments that we the different environments that we see. We believe that that the aerospace industry is a national asset that contributes to to the the betterment of of America. But we don't want a free ride. We want to be competitive. We don't despite what you hear, yeah, we'd like to have uh, you know, sole source contracts, but you don't see a lot of them in the in the in the beginning phases. We need to remain competitive in order to keep our technological edge. We're net positive on the economy, we sustain the industrial base, and we enhance our political relationships with our allies and other military partnerships. Now what we need to do is is be innovative and affordable. Uh, we need to, re to reduce our costs with uh, targeted research and development investments and streamlining our production processes. I would wager you that if you go into any one of our plants, you will see the vast majority of them are very highly mechanized. They're, they're all uh, lean, six, six, lean Six Sigma systems oriented, uh, doing the best to reduce production costs. We need to be on cost and schedule. We've got to keep a robust supply base. Uh, get in the commercial world where we are, where we can, stay global, and then of course recruit and retrain a skilled and diverse uh, science and technology workforce, which is becoming more problematic every every day. From the government side, I guess I'd like to see a lot less uh, headbutting. Uh, and promote the, sort of a common understanding of where we are, we are going as a team. Too often we end up getting into eaches of programs and it ends up at levels that it doesn't really need to. People don't really understand the issue and then we, we're, we're in trouble with lawyers writing each other. Uh, nothing wrong with lawyers. Just <laughs> they're not in it for the technology. Stable program requirements and funding. I can't, I can't tell you how important it is to keep the funding. If it's, lo if it's low, fine. Start low, stay low, don't change it. Uh, and, the, and the same thing with requirements. If, you, if we bid a, a system, uh, buy the system that we bid you. And if you, wanna, and if you wanna improve it later on, that's fine. But you first, don't try to change it after we already start building it. Uh, Multi-year pro procurements. Uh, the, the Constitution requires that, that uh, budgets for the military are annual. So that means every year we have another voting process in Congress where we decide how many F-35s, F-22s, F-16s we're going we're gonna to buy as a country. Really hard for, to predict in that kind of environment how to buy parts, how to buy your, your lead-in spare, and all that kind of stuff. You know, if you don't have any control over your market, and it's very capricious and arbitrary. Uh, but uh, it would be better if we could uh, adopt multi-year procurements. Then that way, you know, you would understand your budgets, and it would be a lot cheaper to buy five years worth than one year at a time for five years. The other, the other point with that is, is that the Congress hates that idea, of course, because they can't twiddle with it every year. So I don't think it's going anywhere soon. Uh, again. As I talked about uh, technology transfer, I, I, it just needs to be rational because right now it, it's not, and and we end up uh, <coughs> we end up arguing about things that, that make sense, make, make no sense and not arguing about important stuff and missing it. And then of course support efforts uh, from the gov the government needs to increase the pool of young and talented uh, scientists and engineers. Uh, 
it's a full partnership deal. The defense companies, the DOD, the Congress, NASA, academia, all the international guys, the international governments, and then that, that would lead to a healthy aerospace uh, and defense industrial base. And that's essentially what I had to talk to you about this morning. I'd love to get into a dialogue if anybody has questions. I think Jacob has got a list of questions there. <laughs> hmm. Refuse a challenge. Yeah. Uh, uh, downsizing. Uh, what about the, the big five? I mean, do you see any, uh, I guess, well, consolidation you, going back? I don't think you're going to see any more consolidation no. of those of those five major major players. Uh, you'll see some second tier, maybe some second tier guys get bought up by big by one of the top five, and maybe some second tier guys buy up some more second tier guys. But but the budget being kind of what it is, pretty well understood. Uh, I, there's not a lot of appetite in the, in, uh, in the administration that we've seen to just whack the, the DOD, the defense budget. You're in, a, you're in a war. They know there's a huge background of equipment that needs to be recapitalized. Re re so right now, now, where that money goes, it's another, another question. But no, I don't see any, any further consolidation in the, in the near future. Yeah. Don't you think that in uh, one respect we're a little bit uh, victims of our own success, uh, that we view the world as, you know, there is no, no military-industrial complex that really poses a threat based on our, our success in Iraq? And uh, you think that's a realistic thing? I mean, is, is it realistic to think that 122 F, uh, F-22s can, can secure the battle airspace against say, a Russian threat or a yeah. Chinese threat in the future? Well, I think, I think as things are right now, we're fine. But if you go out 10 to 15 years, uh, then things begin to change when you have the rise of a more, a more global com competitor, either <coughs> Russia or China. Um, um, when you say victims of our own success, you know, we, we really want to provide the best equipment we can for the guys that, that are there in arms way. And you have an excellent background infrastructure in DOD for really producing the best equipment in a competitive kind of way. We, we outspend the rest of the world in RDT&E. I mean, it's, we spend more money at missiles and fire control and research and development internal, internal, and probably most of the rest of the world combined. I wasn't being critical. I, 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 I'm actually saying right. that we've done such a great job that we kind of lost some support in the American mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of great about being an American. Just take it for granted. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how to answer. I you know this guy's got a little experience in this world. I don't know if we get into our own success. Too often I see our own shortcomings. Well, I, I would I would tend to agree with what you're saying because what we see is is that people uh, view the world a little differently than they have in the past as the wall came down. Uh, people saw the demise of some of the larger militaries around the world and said, well, look, we're in such a position of dominance. We have things like peace dividends and things like this. One of the things that John talked about is there is going to be a continued rise of Russia and China and other uh, governments out there. And if you stop producing F-22s, you just don't turn them back on. If you look at how long that aircraft has been in development, so if you shut off that process, how do you start it again if there is 
another government arises out there. So that's one of the threats and some of the things that people struggle with. Don't you believe that because uh, the world economies are becoming more integrated that we, uh, and you brought Thomas Friedman in the book, The World is Flat, don't you believe that the uh, overall world budget on defense might actually uh, slow down and that the, uh, I guess the economies will become more uh, parallel in, in a sense and that there won't be a rise of a particular government? I guess what I see is a leveling of technology. Uh, and, and maybe to your point, if maybe we've been too successful, we, we can't, in my mind, afford to rest on our laurels. Uh, on the other hand, it, it becomes hard to make a case when we've got, on any given day, 200 major surface combatants underway, the rest of the world has clean. Well, I don't know, how much is enough? I mean, uh, yeah, at, at one point, are we the global police, the world's global police, and people argue, are we, should we be? The fact is we are, end of story, it's, it's a fact, deal with it or, or change the system. But you know, who's, who's organizing the anti-piracy uh, business off of Somalia? Admiral Courtney. Who's, I mean, anywhere you go, who's policing the streets in Malacca? Who's the, the U.S. Navy? I mean, it, it's, it's just fact. So, but I think it's instructive that the, the Chinese make a huge deal about deploying you know, three ships to the Horn of Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is a major undertaking on their part. But I don't think we can we can assume, I mean, I think they must recognize this is also a shortcoming well, that they, they need to address. And I, I, I don't think they're doing it for a political reason. I think they're doing it for re hardcore reality. They're trying to ship energy out of there, too, to, the, to their, themselves. This is not, well, let's be nice friends with the, the Europeans. No, they want to protect their own stuff. I mean, governments don't do things usually unless there's a, a, a money motive behind it. If any politics is, you know, there's a reason to do this. You don't just send your military out there kind of be, be nice with Americans. John, yeah. talk about how the change in uh, the uh, threat to, uh, to uh, asymmetric uh, uh, warfare and uh, has uh, and its effect on the aerospace industry. Because yeah. as we've seen, it's great to be able to deploy close air support in Afghanistan and drop a 2,000 pound bomb directly on top of a guy who's a you know a Taliban fighter with an AK-47. But at, the, at what cost are you doing that? And how many you know how many F-16s or F-22s or F-35s do you have to deploy? To when you're dealing with essentially insurgents that disappear into the population. Yeah. I, I think the key thing is, is balance because uh, because of the fact that we are still the only guy that can deploy a, a significant force in the world on a moment's notice that we're stuck with that role. So I think we have to look at the balance of, of what what we're ending up doing. Um, who is it? Taylor here is working. He's a lucky guy working direct in energy. Uh, what we started out in that business to do was to defeat IEDs. But we had a whole lot of improvised uh, explosive devices that are killing our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. A, a, a basic uh, threat there. What we are trying to, for our business, we're trying to refocus on tech, relevant technologies in that world. Uh, 
rather than the 2,000 pound bomb that you talk about, which we build also, we're trying to get to lighter, uh, more uh, precise weapons that may only take out the one Taliban fighter or may be able to fly into a cave or something, something like that that makes sense. Uh, but it's hard because we respond to requirements of the that are generated by the government. And if the, gov the government, the Army, Navy, Air Force, are not generating requirements for these kinds of <coughs> systems, well, there's no, I mean, we can go and invent it for you, and we can try to convince you that there's a need for it, you know, the better mousetrap theory. But that's usually not very profitable. Because the government, oh, well, we got another way to do that. You know, the point is, it's balanced. You gotta address the, the current threat, the, the future threat, and the asymmetric threat. Sometimes when those arguments are made in Washington, I, I, I don't know how it works out. To us, we'll respond to, to the requirement that our, that our war fighters have. We're, we're against that. So, anyway. John, what well, part, yeah. part of the Russians have to compete with the F-22 and the F-35? Uh, the, um, frankly, nothing. Oh, uh, the F-22, uh, just open source, I don't know anything about it, but open source documents on the F-22, I don't know anything technical about it. The F-22 is able to supercruise, which means that it can fly uh, over Mach 1 without afterburner. There's no airplane in the world that can do that. What that enables it to do is fly a long distance real fast. Uh, the F-35 and the F-22 are both stealth fighters. They're they are not invisible to radar, but they are essentially invisible to radars. Uh, no one in the world has anything like that. Uh, uh, we've been doing that technology since the uh, B-2, the F-117. We're getting pretty good at it. So the radar cross-sections of the F-35 and the F-22 make them essentially invisible. Uh, the other, the other uh, the other thing that these aircraft enjoys is very capable long-range sensors that are uh, highly integrated with the pilot and his ability to employ the sensors and then the weapons to result in what he gets off that. So the old uh, movie where you see the two fighters yanking and stuff, they're never, they're never going to see him. They will be engaged and taken out before that. And then if you the bigger piece is network-centric warfare. So if you take the, the AWACS, the Airborne Warning and Control System, we're just talking about this. You know, this guy deploys over over uh, Kansas City, and he can direct traffic at Los Angeles International with his radar. Okay, so th there's no he can see airplanes taking off on the ground with his radar in Los Angeles. So put that into a military context. Nobody's going to get the drop on those unless unless they do. <laughs> We've been proven you know, wrong before, but they shouldn't because of the capability. That's what we bring. Where we bring sensor integration, advanced technologies, and all that. But if you're only building 150 of them and they send a thousand out to get you, you got mass has a quality of its own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
gets talked about. How do you see that affecting the aerospace and defense industrial base? Is that something that is you think is going to come to fruition, or is that something that's always going to be behind this guy? Can you repeat the question? He's about talking about he's talking about future combat systems and what we call the system of systems common operating environment, which means all of the sen all of the sensors are netted. All the weapons are netted. In other words, they talk to each other like their own computer talks on the on the on the on the internet. Uh, you, uh, hmm? we're supposed to. Supposed to. <laughs> the problem. <laughs> even in even in airplanes. But anyway, yes, this is definitely. Uh, it's not. It's not planned. It is. I think uh, the uh, aircraft. I mean, we are already controlling uh, UAVs from the front seat of an Apache uh, with the internet. Uh, we are already. Doing all, all kinds of battlefield, of course, blue field, you know, blue, uh, you can identify all the battle people, people that are on the battlefield uh, by UAVs. It's, it's, it's a fact, and it's just going to get better and more robust. The problem, of course, is you take out the communications nodes and that sort of stuff. But you're going to build redundancies, and you're going to build mature communications and that sort of stuff. So it, it's a fact, and it's the biggest single advantage the U.S. John, I hope it doesn't rely on satellites because the Chinese plan to shoot those down. <laughs> there are other means. Okay. <laughs> I think we've got time for one last formal question before everybody heads okay. out that needs to. Yeah. Uh, Proton Weakness, you know, subscribes to the theory of open innovation, which means that they just said, we're not going to develop everything inside. It's impossible. We cannot develop everything even with the academia we already mm -hmm. have links in. And therefore, they are preparing the briefs that go pretty much around the world to see if the bits and pieces mm -hmm. uh, can be brought back to them from the most un unusual sources sometimes. Do you guys do the same one in your RDG? Well, we have a pretty robust network of uh, technology uh, hunters mm -hmm. that, that, that go around I mean, uh, and go around and look for such things. I was just in China a few weeks ago looking for commercial nuclear power generation sources <coughs> and, and, and how to control those, those reactors and, and that sort of stuff. So I, I, I think we do, but we don't do it, we, we go about it in different ways. We don't buy the company, we try to buy the technology or, or partner with that company or, you know, to develop that sort of thing. Lockheed Martin's somewhat different. We, don't, we are not an international company or a U.S. company that does business internationally. If we have this discussion, we, we, you know, we are building our stuff here in America and selling it to our allies and, and, and friends. And if we, and through our own marketing <coughs> or through foreign military sales, we won't see Lockheed flying a company in Germany. Just won't do it. But. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.